not all religion is acceptable to God. What? That's the pastor talking. When I say that, I'm talking about all kinds of different religious people, whether they're Baptists or Methodists or Catholics or Presbyterians or whatever. And I include in that people who attend Peninsula Community Church. Not all religion is acceptable to God. You can spend your life being very religious and end up wasting your time. You can deceive yourself, but you never fool or deceive God. And sometimes if you're just doing religion, you might as well have spent your life fishing or bowling or swimming or whatever. Because those might have done just as much good as all your church attendance and your praying and your giving. James 1.26 says this, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, and he goes on. I read that verse just to say there is a religion that is worthless. There's a religion also that is pure and true. And so we have to be careful that we don't deceive ourselves because that's the easiest kind of deception. We don't even know we're doing it. Now, the word religious to James means basically the same thing as it would mean to us today. It refers really to some outward aspects of the Christian faith, going to church, being in a small group, you know, whatever, singing, praying, giving. How do we know if our religion, even conservative, evangelical, Bible-based religion, is acceptable to God? Well, James tells us, and in two weeks we're going to look at James 1. We won't take much time this morning there. But in a quick glance, James says that the religion God approves is judged by what you say. It's judged by your compassion. It's judged by your, your, your character. Therefore, 40 days of true religion is more about Monday morning faith than Sunday morning faith. What happens on Sunday is important. It's very important. But what happens on Monday morning in your life is just as important, maybe more. So 40 days of true religion is about Monday morning faith. So we're gonna introduce this series by asking four questions. Number one, why are we doing this? Always a good question to ask. Number two, what are the elements that we're hoping to, to be involved in this spiritual life campaign? Where do we start? this journey, and what is this really supposed to mean in our lives? So, why 40 days of true religion? Okay, we are starting, I didn't say it yet, we're starting a spiritual life campaign today. Okay, this is Sunday number one of seven. There will be seven messages, including this one, and, and, and so that's um, where we're headed. Why are we doing this? For three reasons. Number one, so that we can do something all-consuming together, so that we can march together down this path, that we can grow in unity and purpose after a period where we've been rather divided and maybe not real unity. The topic is born out of our backwards look through Romans where, we, where Paul was very clear that we need to live our theology. 
Okay, this is a series based on living your theology. The baton, the baton has been passed to us at the end of Matthew to see what we're going to do as we spread the gospel. So we take the baton, and how are we going to do that? That's what this series is all about. Second reason we're doing it is so that we can develop some new habits together. This is an opportunity for you to put first things first, to reorient life, to make sure you're in the word as you should be, to make sure we get serious and we make the choice that says, God, in the next 40 days, there are some things I need to not do and there's some things I need to now do. And, and we can develop those habits together. And number three, we do this so that we can explore the heart of God together. Historically, we have separated life on Sunday from life on Monday. And true religion is not about sacrifices. It's not about rituals. It's not about reading the Bible or even going to church. It's not about, as Paul would say in Romans, following the Torah, as the weak in Rome would say. It's about loving God and loving others. God has given the church the power and the ability to change the world for his glory. So what are we going to do to act justly? What are we going to do to love mercy? What are we going to do to walk humbly with our God? We will confront those themes through the days of 40 days of purpose. Now, true religion. That's a... I don't... Never mind. So what are the elements in this campaign? That's why we're doing it. But what are we going to do? We're going to have seven messages starting today, to lead us hopefully to the heart of God. The adult Sunday school classes are each being led by the Spirit to do something in this vein and in this theme. The youth are doing a curriculum on Wednesday nights called True Religion. And then Bruce was going to talk about small groups, but I'm going to let, this is the time. Andrew, you're on. He's going to be Bruce for a few minutes. And he's going he's to talk about Bruce's area. He's going to talk about his area. And then I'm going to clean it up. <laughs> That's it. That was the that was the deal. Yes, pretend I'm Bruce for a moment. Well, there's two uh, key areas uh, really of applying what we're talking about that we wanna we wanna reinforce. Uh, the first one is really small groups. For the last few weeks, we've been pushing people to sign up to small groups, get involved, um, and I think one of the reasons why is uh, I think. Uh, Pastor Jim said it well, right? We're kind of about forming some new habits. What better way to kind of do that than in small groups? And so in our small groups, we are looking at a series called Just Open the Door. It's focusing on hospitality um, because we want to talk about live theology. And so hospitality, um, building on this idea first and foremost uh, of starting in the church. How do we open the door for the people in the church? How do we welcome each other in the church? How do we uh, build this kind of camaraderie and unity and and friendship even in the church, um, but also really uh, the, the Matthew 28 as well, like how do we take this out to others as well? How do we, how do we present hospitality to others? How do we show others we want them and, and we care about them? Um, and so that's kind of what we're doing. There is a book and a video. Um, the book really is, is more of the heart of it, and so we encourage you, to, if you don't have a book, to get a book. Uh, there's three little sessions you do each week, and then you come together as a group um, and do it all together. So really the book's the bigger focus, um, but there's a video that kind of goes along with it and sets it up as well. And we're encouraging small groups to meet every week. Whoa, 
I know most of you are like, we meet once a month or like every other week, like a, a small group or young adults, we meet every other week. And so it's like, just for this time, we would encourage everyone to meet every week. There's six sessions and an, in, and an introduction if you started last week. Um, and so we're encouraging everyone to meet every week. So you kind of follow up your Sunday morning message and now you got to kind of get the application um, in the small groups. And the second thing we're doing, which is also really affirming um, the application of this stuff, is we're doing something called 100 Tables. Uh, you'll see, hopefully next week, some decor uh, called 100 Tables. Um, and the idea is to reinforce this hospitality, to reinforce hospitality. And so 100 Tables really is simply this. It's will you invite someone or join in someone um, in a gathering, sit and have a meal? It's so amazing to see how often Jesus just broke bread with people how often he would share or do ministry over food. I think there's a real power um, of food when it comes to ministry. And so we're inviting everyone to do that. We want to see if we can get 100 individual different meetings through our church, 100 different tables where people are getting together. Um, they're, they're talking, they're doing life, they're living their theology together, they're praying um, and, and in a sense doing life together. And then when you do, though, you're supposed to take um, a, a vertical picture and you're supposed to send it in to us so that we can highlight you. We want to build this big uh, art piece outside showing everyone the 100 tables. Um, I, we might have some pictures real quick to show you real quick. So um, just this last week, uh, we were invited to a table. We didn't host. Katie and I didn't host. We were invited to a table. So this is Dennis and Jess. They're young adults. They brought us into their home. They cooked for us made a, a homemade taco bar and he's like marinating meat forever and all this stuff and so this moment though we, we got to sit and talk and share in life together and so do tables like this find people in the church to to, to get together say hey i want to meet and i want to hang out with you um try not to just do your same group of friends every sunday you know the idea is to meet new people and to get together um, but we also don't want it to sound too intense because the table could also look like this um, that's just that's just Bryce and I sharing a donut, talking about homecoming and and what the experience was like, and and talking about life. And yeah, that was this morning. Yeah, yeah, that was this morning. But but you know, go go to something like an In and Out or a Chick Fil A. Sit with one person. You don't have to invite twenty people, but sit with them, talk with them, pray with them. That's a hundred tables. The goal is if we, if, sometimes we just, we, there's a lot of people you don't know here. So you can go out to eat, you can make it a potluck, you don't have, it's not meant to be a big ordeal. But just try to get together because what we really want eventually is maybe you could invite your neighbors just for a meal together. You can eat together, you can talk together, maybe on their way out the door for a minute you pray for everybody. You know, it, it's learning hospitality among us so that we can transfer that to change the world. We'll change this peninsula probably more by being more, demonstrating more hospitality than maybe anything else. And so we're just trying to, to, we're trying to nudge you to be a little bit uncomfortable maybe even as this goes through. So we've got the, can you go back to that other slide so I don't remember, we've got the small groups I know the video is a little off-putting, that first one. Just ignore it. The videos aren't what this is about. The material is wonderful uh, because we just wanted to, to, 
how do we apply this? And so that's what the hospitality is about. 100 tables. Oh, and then my thing I'm supposed to talk about. On your way out the door, you get a uh, 40 days of true religion. So pick this up. The idea is every day for the next 40 days, beginning tomorrow, there's a scripture to read. And then Bruce wrote just a little context paragraph for you. That's it. That's it for the day. Right? I want you to think about these verses and we'll learn the heart of God if in 40 different verses, Old Testament, New Testament, as we move through. So that just kind of is a way to ground us uh, and think about the scriptures and, and challenge ourselves with what the heart of God is really like. So that's what this is about. You will get an email if you're on our email list every Monday morning with the week ahead of you. So if you don't get one of these or if you're watching online and you can't get one today, um, these will be in your inbox uh, starting tomorrow. Uh, they're available in the office anytime you want, etc., etc. So, where should we start this morning? How do we get going? I want to start by asking this question. What is the task of the church? What is our role? What's our place in the world? Because the task of the church, it really needs to be rooted in the mission of Jesus Christ himself when he was here. What did he do? Well, he was all about the kingdom. And he was clear throughout uh, what, he, what he did. He talked about the kingdom. And then he did some things that was kingdom work. He preached the good news of the kingdom. And he did it in places where his actions wouldn't be missed. So as his church, if that's what Jesus is about, talking about the kingdom and doing the kingdom then the church must be doing the same thing. It's important what we say, and it's important what we do. We spent enough time in the Gospels to know that Jesus delighted in spreading that good news, and where oftentimes among the hurting and the poor and the weak. So it's not surprising that God has commanded us to care for the weak and the poor just as well. So let's look at the task God gave his people. We're going to start in the Old Testament. What were they supposed to do? Then we'll move to the New Testament. What were they supposed to do? Or what are we supposed to do? In the Old Testament, Israel was supposed to point forward to this coming king. They were supposed to live their lives in such a way that people around them were saying, oh, I wonder what this king is really like. I can't wait for him to get here. They were a sneak preview of the coming attraction. And people were supposed to say, wow, these people are really different. I can't wait to meet their king. Now, among the commands God gave to his people were these, you know, you got to have a Sabbath, a day of rest for you and for the alien living in your land. The Sabbath year, it canceled debts for Israelites. The Old Testament allowed for poor people to glean in the fields, to pick up that which was left so they wouldn't be hungry, pick up the scraps. Old Testament slaves were freed, and, and, and they equipped the slaves to be productive. The Jubilee year, every 50, every the 49th, the 50th year, it released slaves, it returned the land to its original owners, and the goal was very clear, Deuteronomy 15:4. however, there need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. 
if only you fully obey the Lord your God and, care, and are careful to follow all of these commands I'm giving you today. What? There weren't supposed to be poor people. Unfortunately, Israel didn't fulfill its task. They were a lousy sneak preview of the kingdom and of the king. And so God sent them into exile. Why did God send them into exile? First thing that comes to our mind is idolatry. We picture them running every morning to their idols and their little shrines, which is true. They, they were. But listen to the words of Isaiah. Isaiah 1, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and of, fat, of the fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the smell of, I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who asked this of you? The trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Verse 16, take your evil deeds out of my stop, sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Isaiah 58, shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to their descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They even seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it. God's ignoring us. Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet on the day of fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. Verse five, is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger of malicious talk, and if you spend yourself in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Why are they sent into captivity? Yes, idolatry is a problem. It was a huge problem, but it's bigger than that. 
they appear to be looked at as, as very personally pious and righteous. They have the outward form of religion. They worship, they offered sacrifices, they celebrated Sukkot. They fasted, they prayed. In our world today, they went to church every Sunday. They didn't have a problem going to home group every week. They, they celebrated with, with other believers. They went on every retreat. They attended every breakfast. They sang loud with the praise band. But God was disgusted with them. He goes so far, did you catch the opening phrase, you are Sodom and you are Gomorrah. Why? Because Isaiah made it clear that they failed to care for the poor and the oppressed. He wanted his people to loose the chains of injustice and not just go to church. He wanted them to clothe the naked, not just go to home group. He wanted his people to spend themselves on behalf of the hungry, not just sing praise songs. Personal holiness and corporate worship are essential to the Christian life, but they must lead to lives that act justly and love mercy. That's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? God's people at the church, we are more than a sneak preview. We, we, after the story has played out, we are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ, the very fullness of him. And when people look at us, what should they see? They should see Jesus. When people look at the church, they should see the one who declared in word and in deed to the leper, the lame, and the poor that his kingdom can bring healing and redemption all over the world. That's how the church began. And how Israel failed, we have to succeed. 1 John 3.16, you know John 3.16. 1 John 3.16 says this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And that ought to cut to the heart of every American church. By any measure, we are the richest people this planet has ever seen. And yet at no time in history has there ever been greater economic disparity than there is today. Economists say, for most of human history, there was little economic growth and relatively low economic inequality. But in 1820, everything changed. The Industrial Revolution changed everything. The average per person income in rich countries was only about four times greater than the average in a poor country back in 1820. But today, the Industrial Revolution has hit. It didn't hit everybody equally. They say today, Americans live on about $165 a day on average. And yet about one billion people 
live on less than a dollar a day. And 40% of the world's population, 2.6 billion people live on less than $2 a day. If God's people in both the Old Testament and the New Testament were supposed to care about the poor when the relative economic disparity wasn't as great, what about today? If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? What's the task of the church? It is to embody Jesus Christ by doing what he said and presenting his message around the world to declare in both word and deed that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He brings a kingdom of righteousness, justice, peace. And the church needs to do this and proclaim this where Jesus did it and proclaimed it. Among the blind, the lame, the sick, the outcast, and the poor. But 40 days of true religion is not going to be about creating guilt. That's not what this is about. It's not supposed to transform us into into social gospel warriors. I do want us to open our hearts and our eyes to what the scripture says so that scripture can do its work in our heart. So, last question, what does this series mean? And here's where I really want you to listen carefully. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. During these 40 days, you are not going to like everything that the Bible says And you probably are not going to like everything that I say. We cannot let modern political persuasions color this series. I'm not going there. And I'll say it up front. If I do not offend you at some point, then you are not listening. (laughs) There is no way we walk through this without, you know, offending someone on all sides. But I want you to listen to me as I start this series. You know the story of the Good Samaritan. It's in Luke 10, starting at verse 25. We're not going to walk through the parable. I'm assuming a general knowledge of what the parable's about. You know the plot line. I want us to look at two things, though. The question at the beginning, which prompts the story, and the application of the story to life at the end. Because I think the opening and the closing set a tone for the next 40 days. And from this parable, this series I think means two things that I can take away from this. Number one, the lesson I want us to see in this parable is this. This series or this parable will ask a question about eternal life. That's what the parable's about. The story is found only in Luke. It's a question from a lawyer A lawyer was a scholar dedicated to study and religion and civil law mixed in those days. It was the same thing. And he's coming up to this itinerant preacher from the backwaters of Galilee to ask him a question. And in verse 25, it says this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The subject is eternal life. Jesus says, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Jesus doesn't say, well, this is the gospel. 
I mean, shouldn't he have told, you know, the, 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 this lawyer that, well, you know, we've got this old covenant thing, but pretty soon I'm going to die and we're going to replace the old covenant with the new covenant and, and there's going to be this crucifixion. Jesus says, no, what does the law say? Go back to the old covenant. What does it say? What does the law of Moses say is, as the place where eternal life is found? And it's like, oh, this isn't very Roman-esque. This isn't the book of Romans here. And lawyers, they, they, from what, sometimes they do like to hear themselves talk. Well, I'm just going to say that. So when Jesus asks for his opinion, you can picture him clearing his throat, getting ready to give his good answer. And he does in verse 27. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says what? You've answered correctly. It's the same answer Jesus is going to give in Matthew 22. It's a great answer. It's orthodox. It's complete. You can't fault the answer. And so Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Then Jesus adds six words, which change everything. He says, do this, six words, do this and you will live. That's a problem. Even though the man's answer is correct, how does he follow his own advice? The lawyer finds himself in the midst of a real dilemma. He has spoken out of an orthodoxy that he really believes, and which Jesus says, yeah, that's right. And yet if he really faces it, he knows what? He can't do that. And now that the answer's been turned back on himself, he looks for a loophole. Verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. I can't do that, so come. So he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? Well, if we can redefine neighbor, you know, I live out in the country, I only have one, so I just have to be nice to that guy. <laughs> and so Jesus tells the story. I hope you know the story. The Good Samaritan, he gets hurt, he's laying across the road between Jericho and, and up in Jerusalem. And three people come by, and only the dreaded Samaritan will help him and gets him back on his feet. The second thing I want us to notice is this, however. The series, this series, this story, ends with a boomerang question. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Boomerang question is one that, you know, you send it out there and it comes back and hits you. In the beginning, the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? At the end, Jesus changes the question. It's not who is my neighbor, but whose neighbor am I? And there's a big difference. To ask who is my neighbor is to focus on, on what claim they have for my attention, my time, my energy, my resources. But to ask whose neighbor am I is to ask what do I owe for the suffering people around me? And as if that isn't troubling enough, we need to realize that this is absolutely impossible to measure up to what Jesus is saying here. If this is the ultimate requirement that each of us must perform to attain eternal life, we're never going to get there. 
Now, a lot of people find a way around the parable of the Good Samaritan because you know what Jesus was doing. He's just talking about a pattern for living, you know, just that's my pattern. And, and yeah, I'll just do the best I can. I'm going to do it, but just in a smaller version, maybe 10%. And if you think Jesus is trying to give you this story as a lovely example, if that's your interpretation, you're going to end up a hypocrite. And you're only going to pay lip service to it. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe we ought to love our neighbors. And I would encourage you to do that. You, you can start with me. It's okay. But that isn't the point of this parable. And that is not the point of 40 days of true religion. This is, there is more to this story than a presentation of a good example. Jesus was trying to arouse in this lawyer some real emotions. If you think it's just a beautiful story, you've missed his point. The lawyer was living under the old covenant, the law. He believed in keeping the law. And Jesus asked the man, when he asked him to express his beliefs, Jesus said this parable, basically, your beliefs aren't going to get you into my presence. Because you can't even live up to what you believe. For him, the parable of the Good Samaritan, it was meant to be an awful story. Because if he really understood what he needed to accomplish to inherit eternal life, he had to keep the law, all of it, all the time. He would have walked away, and he did walk away with, with crushing hopelessness. You see, that was the purpose of the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus needed to puncture this self-righteous lawyer's heart. And he used his own beliefs against him. Because he was so locked into his own self-righteousness, he wasn't ready to hear the message of grace. A person has to feel lost before they will allow themselves to be found. And Jesus is trying to provoke within this man some, some get rid of this self-justification because it won't produce eternal life. Romans 3 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. That's what Jesus is trying to get the, this lawyer to understand. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He wanted him to see that. He wanted him to feel that. And Jesus did not tell this story so that the man would learn to follow the example of the Samaritan person. But it, it's not a bad example to follow. But Jesus was showing this man that it was impossible to love his neighbor as much as he loves himself. You can't do it. So close your mouth, knock out the spiritual legs from under this guy so that he will come to repentance. Now, maybe you think you can follow the Good Samaritan's example and get to heaven. Are you going to be prepared to do everything that he did? You're willing to pay somebody else's doctor bills? You're going to stop for every broken down car you see on the highway? I look to see if I know them. If I don't know them, you know, hopefully they have AAA. When my kids were younger, we'd have little kids around now and then. I was a good dad. I changed my kids' diapers. Your kid comes to my house and needs a diaper change. 
honey, the diaper needs changing. I didn't do very many foreign children's diapers. Your kids are great, I love them, but I don't love them as my own. This parable says, Jim, how much do you love your neighbor? Jesus says I should love everyone who's in need. He's telling me that I should love my neighbor as myself. That's hard to do. I don't even probably love my kids as much as I love myself. I'm number one. This isn't a wonderful story because it reveals exactly how corrupt I am. No wonder this parable causes so many people to sense that God is disappointed in them. The truth is that you will never squeak into heaven by trying to be like the Good Samaritan. You will fail like an earthquake. You'll be inadequate. The parable was never meant to lead directly to heaven. You cannot inherit eternal life by living just according to those two commandments perfectly for your entire life because you can't do that. You can try, but the moment you think you've arrived, there's another neighbor somewhere you've ignored. We'd like to live that way, but I'm afraid I can't imagine it really happening in my own life. I would assume you feel the same way. And you see, that's the truth which must blanket this entire series. If this parable, if doing stuff is our way into heaven, the only hope we have is to go through the back door because the front door, we're never going to make it. I can't love the Lord with all my heart and love my neighbor as I love myself. No matter how I try, I am realistic enough to know that that's impossible. I don't love a lot of my neighbors. And those I do love, I don't love them very much because I'll never be able to live up to this standard. And so he pops the bubble of our own self-centeredness because we'll never measure up to God's standard no matter how hard we try. This series is not about making sure we live up to the standard God places us. This series is about learning to discover one facet of the heart of God. And that Jesus, through doing that, if he brings us to our knees, so be it. But we should come pleading for his mercy. If you're not a believer, this parable is supposed to bring you to the conclusion that your only hope for inheriting eternal life is by accept what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Stop believing that you're good enough for God because you'll never make it. Accept his remedy for sin. That his work on the cross is enough. He has already accomplished our salvation. I just believe. The Christian life is not a life of works. It is a life of faith. Romans 4, 5. But to, the, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And when he walked away that day, the lawyer didn't know the rest of the story, that the Son of God was come. He was talking to him to personally purchase a brand new way to come to know God. And Jesus allowed himself to be spit on and mocked and nailed to a cross, and he'd hang there for all the lawyers of the world to see so that people like you and me could have our sin washed away.
Jesus let himself be crucified for me. Therefore now God, as I believe that, sees me as righteous. You see, you have to hold that truth in tension tension with what we're going to talk about for the next 40 days. Evangelism is important. It is very important. But we cannot neglect to make disciples, to make followers of all nations. Young believers need to be trained with a biblical worldview so that they, they will say and ask the question, if Jesus Christ is Lord of all, how do I do farming? How do I do business? How do we run government? How do I live in my family? How do I do art? And on and on it goes. How do I do those things for the glory of God? Because if we fail to see our faith as including an all-of-life element, it will have devastating consequences wherever we go. And there is perhaps no better example of that than the nation of Rwanda. 80% of Rwandans claimed to be Christians when a bloody civil war erupted in 1994, in which the Hutu majority went on a rampage against the Tutsi minority and the more moderate Hutus. Over a period of three months, they killed 800,000 people. They were slaughtered, most of them Tutsis. And you ask, 80% Christian, how could this happen? One missions writer says the answer to that lies in the Rwandan church's failure to apply a biblical worldview, a kingdom perspective to all of life. He wrote, there were two authors, they wrote, for most Rwandans, Christianity was little more than a superficial, privatized veneer on a secular lifestyle characterized by animistic values and long-standing tribal hatred and warfare. The church was silent on such critical life and death issues as the dignity and worth of each person made in the image of God. In other words, the church in Rwanda lacked a Christ-centered, fully-orbed kingdom perspective and therefore it was not equipped to fulfill the Great Commission. It couldn't disciple the nation. And what was going on in Rwanda? The same thing. that was going on not long ago in our churches in Mississippi, Alabama, a hundred years ago. Number one, they had churches that did not fully understand the implications of why Jesus came to earth. So they taught from the pulpits on Sunday mornings that didn't have the impact the gospel it should have had in people's lives on Monday morning. Number two, Despite the failure of his people, King Jesus brought healing to the churches eventually. Today, churches in Rwanda are helping the Hutus and the Tutsis to reconcile with each other. 
You see, the healing of the kingdom cannot be stopped if we will just live our theology. If we will announce this good news, the gospel of the kingdom, why Jesus came to earth, and then do it. I hope this series will reignite our passion for true and pure religion over the next 40 days. The idea that, that the church should be on the front lines of ministry to physical needs is not a, a new concept in the American church. When the 20th century began, there was a tension between liberal theology and conservative theology, and the liberal theology was all about the caring for the poor and the, and the social needs. But what happened, the conservative church, they, they abandoned that, and they did that about the same time as the rise of the welfare state and the war on poverty. And we let the government take our role. Theology matters. You need conservative, conservative theology is what we need, but we need to then do it. And we must rediscover a Christ-centered, fully-orbed perspective of the kingdom. Because we can have a good theology and we can live that theology as we face the deep needs of those around us. So let us follow Jesus in word and in deed. Not for salvation. That's not what this is about. Don't ever hear that from me. But because of Jesus. Because of who he is and the example he has set for us. We've begun. Who knows where we're going? But we've begun. We do know where we're going. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you came and you shared the hope of the world in the story of redemption with everyone. I just pray that we will be a church who will do the same, that we will remain true to what we believe, but that on Monday morning, we will see the, 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 the reach of redemption into this world, that we might truly have a religion that's right and pure and, and far from worthless because we want to change the world. We want to love our neighbor. And we want to them to know the depth of your love for them. In Jesus' name, amen.